what I've been doing a lot is forcing my way into other people's dinner parties and being like, okay, you're gonna host, but here's what I wanna bring. You don't have to do the whole thing, but you, I'm like, okay, I, I wanna bring the flowers and I'm really excited about this dessert. Like, can I bring it? Thank you so much. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. My old friend Sonia Chopra stops by in this episode of the show, and I could not be more excited. I just love catching up with Sonia, and we talk about her work as the executive editor at Bon Appetit. We talk about the magazine's big Thanksgiving issue, which I like a great deal. We also talk about Sonia's really cool career in food media and her future writing plans, fiction writing, that is. It's, she's got a bright future, the Sonia Chopra. Sonia is a writer, a thinker, and I loved having her on the show. Sonia Chopra, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So happy to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you in person because we've known each other for a minute. I met you, uh, I think it was at a food tasting tent in Atlanta. <laughs> Must have been like 2012. Yeah, something like that. I was down there at a food festival. And like we like just started talking because we were like absorbing all these great chefs. And you were so into Atlanta. And I, I love that about you as a writer and reporter. You've obviously moved to New York and you are the executive editor at BA. And Epicurious, but you come from this background of reporting on cities. It's 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 such a it's such a cool thing uh, to talk to a journalist who's then risen to like being an editor. You're like started in the in the front lines. Yeah, and I think um, you know focusing in a place that wasn't New York is so interesting. When I left Atlanta in 2014, I was convinced it was the best cocktail scene in this in the country. I was certain of it. All the lists were these cool, often <laughs> rotating eight to twelve cocktail lists. You know, you came to New York and. The cocktails are great, but there were these huge books and they didn't change that much. And you had to like know the bartender to get them to make you something fun. I was sold on it. And I think that perspective in food media, which can be so coastal, quote unquote coastal, yeah. so New York, so LA, Completely. so San Francisco, has been really good for me. And, and I hope to bring that to my work every day. Yeah. Did you always kind of want to write about food for a living? You've been doing it for a minute now. It's a good question. I wanted to write novels. I kind of fell into food writing, but I always loved food and I always loved telling stories. And it's so easy to tell stories through food. Food, so I think that's why I've stuck in food media for so long. Yeah, but you you have a fiction future. I hope so. <laughs> when, right. when we'll hope. When we're here at Penguin Random House, we were just looking at some of the authors. What, what are some of the books that you're reading fiction-wise? I know if you follow you on Instagram, which you're a great follow, you're always at bookstores. You're a bibliophile through and through. I love that. What's good on the fiction front? I just read a book called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Have you read it? No, I haven't read it's that. It's so good. It's um, it's it's kind of making the rounds. Emma Straub, who runs Books Are Magic, just called it um, Cavalier and Clay meets the Interestings, which are two yeah. books that I love. Mm -hmm. And it's just it's a really great book. Beautiful friendships, just really really lovely. Highly recommend. There's a a gaming thread in it. I'm yeah. not a gamer. I don't know that much about uh -huh. it, but I was totally sold. It's it's just really beautiful. Are you working on something YA? inspired YA like I don't want to like frame it as YA because I don't know what it is but what is it I'm working on a novel it's a middle grade novel middle so grade. 8 to 12 years old I'm also separately working on a I'm always I'm always trying to write a book and I'm, I'm really trying to build in some 
um, some time to write for myself in the mornings. I, I'm writing at 6 a.m. a couple of days a week. I've become a person who writes on her phone, just yeah. really trying to get it in there because I love it. It's what I've always wanted to do, and it also kind of feeds me creatively, not to not to sound however that sounds. <laughs> no, um, I, mean, I get it fully. Uh, and what I will say is, you know, I don't know where my books are going to go or if those are the books that I ever mm-hmm. finish, but I love to really think about how food plays a role in fiction. I read so much fiction where food does play a really a really big role. So I'm I'm excited about it. I think it's a fun project and I um I hope that next time I'm on this podcast I have some exciting news to share. I, I really hope so. And we'll have you back when we to talk about your fiction and hope we publish it here at Penguin Random House. But I want to talk about BA. I want to talk about Epicurious. But first and foremost, we share an absolute love of the Panasonic Flash Express Toaster oven. Mine's white is yours white? Mine is silver. You have a silver one. It's perfect. Uh, this Japanese toaster is perfect. I agree with you. So let's, like, you've written about it, and I'll link to it in the show notes, your, your, your piece about the, this toaster. But um, let's, we could probably talk an hour about <laughs> this, but wh- why do you love this toaster so much? I love this toaster. For a long time, I lived alone, and I don't eat meat. Now I'm eating some fish, but I'm I've, for most of my life, I've been pure vegetarian. And for one person, it's all you need. You can toast uh, you can roast vegetables in it. You can bake cakes in it. And my small Brooklyn apartment, I don't need to turn on the oven if I don't need to turn on the oven. So it's been really great. Actually, last night, um, the volley is next weekend, or I guess by the time this airs, the volley just passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm doing cookie boxes for the volley. So I, I baked some cookies and I piped them and I I put most of them unbaked in the freezer, but I baked two in the toaster oven just so you I could finish, try them. You actually do the baking in the oven. And and what I like about the toaster is it's analog. It's like a classic Japanese style. It's not doesn't have too much digital, doesn't have like an app. Yeah. You basically just turn it on, but it has so many great settings. So how do you actually bake with a, a toaster oven? I, I'm... I've never done this. I'm more of like I reheat meat in it like if I don't want to turn my oven on. I love obviously doing toasts, but I also like um, I like the function. I like roasting vegetables, and I've used that a lot for this one. Yeah, I just um, reheated some lasagna this morning mm. for lunch, so that was delicious. Nice. Um, well, I never really thought about it, but my grandparents in New Delhi, um, and when, they had, when they were in a house, now it's my grandmother in a flat, but in her house, there was no oven. So mm-hmm. she would make banana bread or carrot cakes in their little tiny toaster oven. And I guess when I was a kid, I never really clocked it, but maybe about a decade or so ago, I watched it happen. And I was like, oh, my God, of course. Of course I can make brownies in my toaster oven. And you can. Yeah. I mean, toaster oven almost, like, downplays this oven. And, again, the Panasonic Flash Express toaster oven, they call it toaster oven, but it's more utility appliance. Amazing. So let's talk about BA. You joined in uh, August 2020. Um, you joined at a time that was the publication Bon Appetit was in great turmoil and transition. I, I think we don't need to relitigate everything that happened. You can certainly Google and find out the past regime and you're part of the current regime. I just want to know that generally we had Don Davis on, the editor-in-chief, your boss. But I'd like to get your sense, your executive editor, how are things going? I think things are going well. <laughs> I mean, I, I hope that things are going well. It's always difficult to change jobs and learn new systems and, and learn new brand guidelines. And, of course, um, during such a tumultuous phase, we were also expected to kind of change things. Wow. Really, a lot of pressure on you guys. I know. It's a lot. Really, really fast. And so I think it's a lot of people love to say, like, build the plane as you fly it. Yeah. And, and it was a lot of that, trying to catch up, learn where people were, kind of, I know um, you say a lot, meet your audiences where they are, mm-hmm. kind of 
kind of really reading the room while also making some fast decisions, hiring a team. I've hired about 30 people in the last two years. It's It's been really busy, but I think we are in a totally different place than we were two years ago, and that feels really good. It feels like there's been change. Um, it's really honestly impossible for me to reflect on those first six months, especially. It was so busy. It was such yeah. a wild time. Um, but I think, you know, my number one goal now and always is to make sure that I'm building a team and a brand that's confident and its voice and its vision and mm-hmm. its values. And, and as long as that's true of your team, that's going to show up on the page or on the Instagram reel or in the YouTube video. On everything, because right now food media is not just in the pages. It's online. It's in social channels. And I wanted to ask you about that because we have a lot of editors and journalists on the Taste Podcast, and I wanted to get your sense of, of food media right now. You know, right now it's a place, it's very, very segmented. And I think it'd be challenging to say like you're or it'd be difficult to put all your eggs in just the print or put all your eggs in YouTube because that seems almost like a little bit maybe a dying thing. Um, so how do you think of BA right now um, as a as a food media outlet? How are you finding your audience where they are, where they're hanging out, which is what I like to say? Yeah, I think it's it's tricky. I think I'd, I'd never worked in print before I took this job, and that was something that was totally new for me. And of course, the print cycles start so early, so it's really easy for things to be print first, right? And that's not serving your audience as well across all platforms. And so that's something that we're really, really thinking about and really conscious of all the time. I think um, the right way to think about it, for me at least, is to think brand first. This is a really exciting story we want to tell. This is a really exciting idea that we want to get across or thing that we want to do, tentpole that we want to reveal to our audiences. We're a big brand with a ton of platforms. Like, what's the right way to get into this? Okay, here's how it looks on BA.com. Okay, here's how it could look on TikTok. Here's how it should show up in the magazine and really kind of Thinking about it um, top down, uh, maybe you know, mm-hmm. kind of thinking about it brand first has been really, really fun. It's a it's a strategic challenge as much as a kind of content editorial one. It's been exciting. Yeah, it is exciting to follow, and I think your channels are growing. It, it, it's you know, I, I, they come across. I come across BA in my feed in many places, and you'll be relaunching your podcast too. And that's, that's right. That's End exciting. of the year, we're really excited. Let's transition to talk about dinner parties because I really know that a big part of the editorial vision at BA and taste as well is how to like throw a great party, how to host. I think it's a big stress on everybody. Thanksgiving is coming. We'll talk about your Thanksgiving issue, which I got to take a look at in advance and I I really dig it. It's so exciting. It's a cool issue. But let's talk about your own dinner party kind of vibe. Like I'd like to get a sense of like what do you like doing with the dinner party with your when you're hosting? Like, is there like a mission for you? I love a theme. I love to tell cool. stories, and I love you know putting nice. a menu together, like planning the decor, thinking about tablescapes, like thinking about how the menu, the physical yeah. menu is going to look. I love all of those things. I love kind of crafting all of that. So I would say that's that's the thing that I care about the most. Like, what's the point of this thing, and like, what can we really get across? In New York, my husband and I moved into our new apartment in March 2020. And mm. so when we kind of set our apartment up, we were only thinking about ourselves. We weren't thinking about hosting. We weren't thinking about anything. It was March 11th when we when we got oh the my keys. Gosh. We got right in there. Um, and, and so we haven't done a lot of hosting because we're like, oh, my God, our apartment doesn't, like, work for more people than us. The dinner table is just uh, stacks and stacks of books. You know, yeah. there, it's just, like, not a place. So what I've been doing a lot is – forcing my way into other people's dinner parties and being like, okay, you're going to host, but here's what I want to bring. I so did that when I lived in the city. I, I That was my move as well. It's easy, right? Yeah. You don't have to do the whole thing, but you. I'm like, okay, I, 
I want to bring the flowers, and yeah. I'm really excited about this dessert. Like, can I bring it? Thank you so much. That's so great. That, so it's like a, you're forcing your will onto somebody else who <laughs> has more space. Because I, I was with you. We didn't have a great hosting space. So what was the last great dish that you brought to this, like, forced dinner party that you're That's it. Great question. Well, looking ahead, the Valley is this weekend, like I said, mm-hmm. and I'm making, you know, at Christmas, people like to do cookie boxes with yeah. lots of different kinds of cookies. I'm making the Valley cookie boxes. So I'm really excited about that because I can make, I think I have a list of six or seven and I've made two already this oh. weekend and they're in the freezer. Um, uh, so a lot of different cookies and then I can kind of put them on a pretty plate and bring them to the five or six parties that I have to go to in the next couple of days. So I'm, or in the, you know, throughout the next week. So mm-hmm. that's what I'm excited about. And they look pretty and they'll, they'll be nice on a table. And they're also not, um, they're not like imposing, you know, if people make a cake or if they make some kind of other dessert, like you can also have cookies there and you're not like stealing. So what makes a Diwali cookie? Like what, what, what actually, cause I'm thinking like holiday cookies, like a Christmas cookie, but it's got to have a different kind of vibe. I would imagine. A lot of pistachios. Cool. Um, we have a recipe in our holiday issue, um, for these cookies, the ones that I was baking in the toaster oven that are made with lime. And I made them with mango juice instead of lime juice. And those are pretty good. So, um, just stuff like that, you know, just really focusing on those flavors and, and trying to do something fun and different. How much time are you spending in the test kitchen at BA part of your role? there are you are you tasting are you do you do do you guys do that still I know that was part of that's the way food magazines used to work but as we've established it's not really the same as it used to be right I've heard those stories about (laughs) a very formal tasting and people come and they present their dishes and everybody gets feedback right away I've not been a part of that we do taste each other's food so if people are testing in the kitchen and I pop up there I'll taste something if I have Feedback, yeah. I very rarely do. I think everything my coworkers do is amazing. Yeah, right now. Um, I'll give it to them. But I, I try to do a lot of recipe testing. So I try to get in there um, and test something, both to, like, challenge myself and push myself and to make sure I'm kind of aware of what we're doing at mm-hmm. all stages and all levels and because I think it's making me a better cook. So yeah. I just tested a lasagna for Epicurious, my first lasagna that I've ever made. Really? So. Now, uh, bechamel or ricotta? Ricotta. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. I think it's supposed to be like a very hands-off ricotta. Like you bake the sauce in the oven instead of kind of stirring it on a stove. And it has like sliced provolone. It feels very Italian-American. Yeah. It's delicious. It was amazing. I bet. So does Anna Hiesel have any <laughs> uh, any any input in that? Our, our former beloved co-host now works with you at Epicurious. Um, I, I – kind of consciously didn't ask her anything about the lasagna before I made it because I didn't want to color my understanding (laughs) of it. But I said earlier that I had never made a lasagna before. I've definitely made her like tortilla skillet lasagna. I love that skillet. Great recipe. And and we miss you, Anna. Let's talk about restaurants because BA is obviously about home cooking and Epicurious is all about home cooking. But BA is certainly about the restaurant. You have a restaurant issue every year. You're always like talking to chefs, which is why I love the publication. Now, what are you seeing in New York right now that you're enjoying? I know it's such a hard question and I'm putting you on the spot, but I give you a little <laughs> bit of heads up. What do you what do you like in New York? I love this restaurant called Sema. Have you been? No, I haven't been. You haven't been? No, I know, I know. Oh my gosh. Well, let's go to Sema. Yeah. Um, it's this really great South Indian restaurant. It's in Greenwich Village. It was one of our 10 best restaurants of the year in our restaurant issue, which just came out in September. And uh, the folks behind that restaurant just opened a new place in Park Slope where I live called Masala Wala. And yeah. I am hyped to go there. I haven't been yet. It just opened. And I, I try not to go to new restaurants I'm excited about for as long as possible yeah. so I can like 
you know, kind of ease into it. Um, but it has an emphasis on Bengali food. My mom was born in Calcutta, and she and her sister, ever since I send them the menu, they just haven't stopped talking about oh, it. Wow. Once a day, one of them mentions it to me. They're coming to New York in a few weeks. So I'm so excited to take them. I can't wait to try it. I think the best thing about New York is how many new things are opening all the time and how many people are either trying totally wild new things or really kind of focusing on what they know and what they're bringing to the table. And we're so lucky to live here. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Um, I feel the same with you. I I agree that you got to give the restaurant a couple months if you can, because it just takes a while to get the seasoning right. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Those first couple weeks are hard, but... Anything else that we should be looking at? Like in New York City, you know, it's just approaching like big tourist season. Where should we go? I am really excited by the wine. I think there's some really, really great wine lists in the city. I'm also just really excited by how many places aren't stuffy anymore. Like, I mean, I know that's not a new take or an original one, but (laughs) you can after, especially after the pandemic, I just can't sit for three hours and and do a meal anymore. And I think there's so many different ways to eat and different ways to dine out. And I love that. Yeah, I agree. I think it's got the casual nature of dining, though we are paying more than ever, which I think is, is, is a good thing because obviously equitable pay is important, but it's also a bad thing because we don't have money. I mean, it's very expensive. So that's another podcast and another guest probably, <laughs> but I, I agree with you. There's always um, interesting places to go in New York, and it feels more casual. Yes, which I love. Yeah. Let's move on to Thanksgiving because your big issue of the year, it's like the Super Bowl, blah, 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 food media, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but it, it really is. I mean, it's an important issue, and I got a chance to take a look at the new November issue for the, for Bon Appetit. First thing I saw was this cover, which is illustrated. So for, that's the is that what's hitting newsstands and subscribers? That is it. That's the one. Um, wow. I'm so excited about our cover. I hope everybody listening gets to see it and loves it. I actually can't claim that I had any part in the decision, but I really, really love it. Um, you know, newsstand success isn't like a, a huge primary metric for us right now, but I know that people really love to analyze Thanksgiving covers and really kind of look at all the different food media ones all at once. And okay, there's a beautiful turkey over here. Here's another turkey, but it's carved up. Here's another turkey, but it's with sides. And there's kind of like a, um, you can make a game out of it. And I'm really curious to see what people have to say about this one. And I hope they like it. Yeah. So the illustration is expressing, um, I would say it's like the chaos of the Thanksgiving table, which is accurate. It's verite. You know, it's not what we expect from a food magazine cover, which is like the perfect turkey or the perfect side. Um, It's a very bold choice. And it's cool that you bring up that metrics are changing for magazines and you get to maybe make a little more of a creative decision versus like what sells through the most. I, I appreciate that. So I got like, Take me to that first editorial meeting when it comes to Thanksgiving. When is it? Like, what's the timeline? Because I know famously these magazines are not done overnight. It takes time. Um, I am still wrapping my head around the print schedules. We had that first Thanksgiving ideas meeting in April. Yeah. And it is now October. Is it October? Yeah, it's, it's October. October. And the issue is out the door. should be hitting subscribers soon. But yeah, it was a it was a great meeting. I mean, people have such strong opinions about Thanksgiving. I think when you work in food media, you hit a point where you're like, really, what else is there to say? Ugh. Like, what else can we do with, you know, cranberry sauce or whatever? And of course, there's always something new and people think so much more broadly about flavors now, et cetera, et cetera. But what we do in this issue is really get to the heart of the hardest things. Like for me, 
I would never make a pie dough myself. I am sorry to admit it mm-hmm. <laughs> to your audience, but I am just like that is that is hard. That is not something I want to spend my time on. I'm going to buy them or I'm going to outsource that to somebody else. And that's probably true for a lot of people. So we really kind of focus on we're calling it Thanksgiving SOS. We're really kind of mm-hmm. focusing on um, these big, broad questions and challenges that people have. Yeah, it's very smart to to take the hardest things and try to dis- distill them into like great advice and tips and recipes. Um, Don writes in her editor's letter that it was a particularly animated meeting, which I appreciate because we certainly here have animated editorial meetings. And these decisions are hard. Like we want to make sure we're, you know, serving our audience, but we want to make sure we're not being like bland and and obvious. So what was so animated? Do you recall this these meetings, like the topics that were animated? This one I recall vividly. Um, and I think really just people have such strong opinions. What I will say, what I love about a good pitch meeting, whatever the topic is, is when people come with solutions, not just questions. I, I think that's something that we say all the time when people are pitching. And, you know, it wasn't just pies are hard or I hate potatoes. It was like, mm-hmm. here is some helpful, actionable advice. Here's my solution to this challenge that people have. And I really just loved seeing that as, a, as an editor and as somebody who's helping to shape the content. So you met in April – and the issue is being worked on all summer. So your your test kitchen is actually smelling like the morning of Thanksgiving all summer long. Is that kind of like – that seems like a tradition in food media. I think um, before I took this job, I would always hear people having a really hard time sourcing whole turkeys in July. And I was always kind of like, haha, OK, whatever. It's yeah. not that bad. That's happening. That's like what people are trying to do, trying to find whole turkeys, trying to find these ingredients. I My guess – I'm not in the test kitchen, but my guess is it's even harder – for the summer issues when you're trying to find a big, beautiful tomato in the middle of winter. Um, but it is it is a challenge and a fun mm. one. Take it on the road. Go to California. I know. Right? <laughs> the dream. I never asked you, though, you come from digital. Like, you were at Eater for a long time and, and established Eater as, as really the force it is today. And, and you, you deserve a lot of credit. You also worked on the television um, arm of Eater and at Vox Media. But now that you're kind of working in both digital, but this, like, this, like, magazine that's very static. It's like what we do here. We work on books. We work their years ahead. We're talking about books. What is that like, you know, making that transition? Was that difficult? It was difficult. It was it was a um, an opportunity, I think. It forced me in a good way to kind of think more broadly about how to assign a story, what a story really is, like what does it mean to create content? What does it mean to be you know, shaping a brand and having a brand vision. Like if you open the magazine and you open Instagram and you open TikTok, you should feel some kind of shared DNA between all of these platforms and products. And I think that's something that we really try to focus on. Like who are we as a brand? Who is Bon Appetit? Who is Epicurious? And what do we do? And interestingly, um, we're launching an app and it's going to be an Epicurious recipe app. But it's going to have all the Bon Appetit recipes in it. Mm. So we've kind of taken that question to the next level. Okay, so we're going to be driving our audience to this place. We want the app to be a place where people can find all of the recipes from all of these places. It's going to be amazing. How do we retain, you know, the brand voice? How do mm-hmm. we make sure that we're really getting our audiences to know this is BA and Epi, but also we want you over here, but we still want you, you know, over here on bonappetit.com too. It's been really, really fun, a fun yeah. challenge. Big challenge. I mean, big challenge to separate those brands. Um, back to the Thanksgiving issue. You talk about leveling up boring mashed potatoes, and and that's a quote boring. Um, I have to ask, and maybe we can have a little conversation. I mean, for me, the Thanksgiving mashed potato is supposed to be boring. I think that it's a buffer or almost like a reset between the acidity and the richness and maybe your cousin's side that is not good and you put it to the side of your – you want that like kind of dividing line of mashed potatoes. That's the way I look at it. Please disagree (laughs) with me, Sonia. 
I am fascinated to hear this take, which I don't think I've ever heard before. I I know that my perspective as a vegetarian is is possibly a little bit different, um, but because there were so many things I couldn't eat at Thanksgiving, I always looked at the potatoes, often without gravy, because gravy often yeah. has meat in it, as something that I could you know enjoy and eat. And there are just so many bad potatoes. And I think something can be boring and tasty, or something can just be bad. And and I think there are so many versions of mashed potatoes that aren't good. Actually, in my family, we stopped doing mashed potatoes and swapped them out for scalloped a few years ago, yeah. and that's been working really well. But yeah, I don't know. I, w- I, was, I was very surprised to hear that. I think I need to clarify. So boring doesn't mean bad. I agree. And I think it's like it's has to be stated that I'm like a 50-50 guy, 50% mashed potatoes, 50% butter mm-hmm. by weight. Like that's how I make mashed potatoes when I make them. And meaning you you delicious, meaning you have to really um educate your your diner and say these are very intense mashed potatoes. So I guess maybe when I was thinking about it, I was like, that is my baseline. So, of course, if it's like a very bad mashed potato with not enough butter, I mean, that's like kind of a gutsy level of butter, right, doing 50-50. I just, for me, I was thinking like when you say leveling up boring, like you're adding like things into it, like green things. It's turning into like a calcannon hybrid, (laughs) which is not my thing. But I see your point, too. Okay. Yeah, we're not like totally trying to revolutionize. We're not like disrupting mashed potatoes over here. We're making them slightly better. <laughs> we're adding in some like other potato ingredients to kind of bring them to the next level, but we're not changing the game. BA not disrupting mashed potatoes. <laughs> not yet. That's the poll quote. That's the headline. In the issue, I also have Alex Beggs writing about pet food in this advice column. Now, is this an advice column writ large or is this a pet food advice <laughs> column? I'm trying to figure it out. I love Alex. She's written for Taste and she has a great story coming out soon that I look forward to talking to her about. She has an advice column for us. I do not know if regular coverage of pet food is in the cards for Bon Appetit, but I will say that it is, as a person without a without a pet at home like it is wild how much people love feeding their animals i live near this pet food store in brooklyn that sells like oyster toppers and turmeric bone broth for dogs it's shocking oyster toppers what is that exactly oyster toppers like you go in and there's like little bags of oysters for you to like top your bowl of dog food oh it's like a a little like snack before the meal like an amuse bouche i guess for the pooch i actually rhymed just then maybe not really I was, you know, when I had a dog growing up and sometimes we would fry an egg and put the egg on top of the food. It's like that, but literally oysters. Oysters is, that's some like Park Slope absolute insanity right there. It's amazing. The the S&P is not low enough, I feel like, for for people to be paying uh, uh, for oyster toppers. Uh, My my mother makes chicken livers for her dog, Isla. So I I respect that. The topper I respect, but the oysters is kind of crazy. I mean, people will do anything for their animals. Yeah, I, I like that. Me too. Now, Sonia, what are your Thanksgiving plans? Are you traveling to Atlanta to see your family? Are you going to be hosting in New York? What What are you doing? I am so glad you asked me this question because for the first time ever, I am spending Thanksgiving at my in-laws. Oh, And cool. I am sure it will be great. And I'm so excited <laughs> and I love them and we see them a lot. They're in New Jersey. Uh, but for the last 15 years, I've had near full control of our Thanksgiving menu in Atlanta. <laughs> and I really don't know what to expect. It is hard for me to give up control uh, in the best of times. And I don't know that Thanksgiving is the mm. best of times. So I know it will be really fun and I'm so excited to see the whole family. But 
But in terms of the food, I I just don't know how things are going to go. For me, the food will be delicious, but I don't know, like, what my role will be, what should I make, how early is too early to ask, you know, how does, how's it going to go? It sounds almost perfect because <laughs> this is your job – food, media, creating recipe content, et cetera, et cetera. And to have a break on Thanksgiving, I mean, I try to have a break sometimes. I'm also a very big control freak on Thanksgiving as well. And for for certain elements, um, just maybe enjoy it. You're telling me just to let it go. Let it go. Like, I feel like you could stand in the corner, you know, mix yourself a a drink, watch the parade. Okay. And not cook. Do you know I was in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade as a high schooler? Okay, so— I'm guessing this was Dance Squad. A marching band. You were in the band. I was like, <laughs> yeah. Dance Squad, marching band. So what did you play? I played Euphonium, which is, yeah. um, yep. Straight up. Euphonium is cool. Now, when you were there, do you remember the waiting to start? Like, what was that about? Yes, it was so early. And we actually, we did Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. We also did Pasadena Tournament of Roses. And it was oh. colder in Pasadena in January than it was, thank goodness, in New York um, at Thanksgiving. But yeah, you just wait around. It's 4.30 in the morning. You're there. You're just hanging out. It's cool, though. It sounds like you were in an elite marching band unit. Uh, the band was very good. I myself was not <laughs> was not very good. In fact, I was actually quite bad. Oh. Um, but the band was very good and very well known. Yeah. I mean, you get to go to some cool places. So w- do you have a memory of ending, you know, the, the parade, your New York City on Thanksgiving Day? What did you eat that day? What was Thanksgiving like during that band performance? What a great question. I have this memory of eating Thanksgiving dinner in a big hotel, in a big banquet hall. Actually, what I'm thinking of is um, the the Pasadena Tournament of Roses on January 1st. And yeah. so we celebrated the new year at like 9 p.m. East Coast time because yeah. we all had to go to bed to wake up really early. I think that's why I'm conflating those two things. Um, but I love a hotel Thanksgiving. As yeah. a kid, we used to go to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. I had an uncle that lived there. Yeah. And we would kind of do a big banquet thing. So I'm like, you know, I'm into that. You, that was a tradition for you. I mean, but think about New York on Thanksgiving. I've I've been in Michigan every single Thanksgiving for my life. So I've, I've, I feel like um, I don't have a perspective. I've always wanted to be in New York on Thanksgiving. I feel like it's pretty cool. It was it was fun for me as a as a teenager. Let's talk about cookbooks for the fall because BA covers the cookbook world rigorously. You have a great piece about Ina in the new issue, and and she has a book coming out. But Sonia, what are three three or four cookbooks that you're kind of into it being cookbook season? I just have to ask. Oh my gosh, there are so many good ones. Um, I've been cooking through Cynthia Sean Malingam's Rambutan, uh, which is a really beautiful Sri Lankan cookbook, and there are so many great recipes in it. There's a cashew curry. Yeah. There's this roasted aubergine curry and another with um, coconut and pineapple that looks really delicious. So I'm so excited about that one. It's beautiful. Uh, Vish Bhatt's I Am From Here is really exciting I to feel me. that book, it came out early. That was like an August release, right? August or September. I think you're right. It's been out for a while. Yeah. Um, it's I'm a Southerner who's also yeah. Indian. Vish is a Southerner who's also Indian. So I, I really kind of that resonated with me. Um, it's not a cookbook, but Jasmine Guillory, who's a romance novelist, just had a book come out <laughs> called Drunk in Love, which yeah. is set at a Napa winery. That one was really fun. Um, I love books that that tie into food, but I, it just seems like such a great cookbook season. It's been great. And Vish's book, I, I just I, I remember seeing it. And, like, we need to have Vish on the podcast, and you're reminding me, because that is a great book. I love that book. It's awesome. Um, how about your, like, cookbook? I'm not going to ask you the, the final question. Our listeners will know what that one is. But 
you're an editor at BA. Like, what do you look for in cookbooks? What 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 makes you excited about the cookbook world? I, that's a good question. I think that for me, it needs to be serving a purpose, whatever that purpose is. So, like, I have um, Otolenghi's Shelf Love, and I cook out of that book all the time because it is so servicey. It's like, okay, here's, like, the cans that you're using. It's very short ingredient list. Like, you can make this thing. There's this um, – chickpea dish. It's like tandoori spice chickpeas from the book. I, we excerpted on Epicurious and I wrote about it. You dump a bunch of things in a pan, mm-hmm. you put it in the oven for 70 minutes and it's delicious and it's so good. So if it's really servicey like that and it's, you know, I'm busy. I like to cook, but on weekdays, you know, I'm not getting home until 7, 730. And if I don't have dinner ready at home that I can reheat, I need to cook, then you're not eating until nine. Yeah. And you're up early and it's tough. Yeah. That's the reality. I would love to be eating earlier than that. So, so things like that, that make you feel excited about what you're cooking and taste delicious, but are quick. I love that. Um, also books like Cynthia's that are just so beautiful, so narrative. You're telling mm-hmm. this great story. I think that's so exciting to me. So I, it's a kind of a broad answer, but as long as it's doing something, I'm hyped about it. It has a real, like, purpose, either home cooking service or narrative. And and Cynthia Racy's nine great essays within that book, too, and I love her writing. Um, yeah, shouts to Yodam. Like, his recipes are so well-tested, and there's, sometimes they're a little complicated and a little fussy, but I, I think there's always an outcome that – and it ends with delicious, right? Delicious. I love that. So, now we asked all guests on the Taste Podcast, there was a dream food book or cookbook project that you could work on without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, you know all about deadlines, or the burden of budget, meaning you have an unlimited budget to execute this book. What would that book be? I am so interested in partition. Um, my grandparents on my father's side, they were both in what is now Pakistan and came to India in their early teens. I think my grandmother was 13 or 12 and my grandfather was a little bit older. They didn't know each other at the time. And I'm, I'm because I have this personal connection to it, but also because of the long-lasting economic and, and all of these kind of um, effects, after effects mm-hmm. that it had, I've just been always just so keen to really explore it more. And I would love to, you know, go to India, go to Pakistan, go to Bangladesh and really dive Mm -hmm. into food traditions and food ways and how they've changed. And some of those personal stories from people We're coming up to, you know, people who experience partition firsthand. We're coming up kind of to the end of that generation. And this is the time to do something like that. Um, I don't have unlimited budget or unlimited time, but I would love to. to I mean, time, this is a ticking you know, clock on this, on the, and the, these these folks have, are, are dying. You know, their, their stories are not living on. So with Partition, for our audience, is there, um, can you describe the way food, you know, was divided during Partition? Like, are there were there traditions that kind of stayed on one side and didn't make it to the other side, so to speak? I'm speaking very broadly here. Yeah, I think the opposite is true in Punjab, where my dad's family is from. You know, it was one big region, and then all of a sudden it was two regions. So there's a lot of very similar food traditions on both sides of it, but also the way you had to cook kind of when you migrated changed so much. And and there's also some really kind of heartfelt, really harrowing stories. My grandmother tells this story about how she was separated from some of her family and she would go to the train station every day with just a small amount of food and wait for her brother mm. and and would look for him. You know, there's no phones. There's no way of getting in touch with people. And she would just go with her two rotis and wait for him. And if she didn't find him, she would give them to somebody else who was hungry. And there's just it's so um, it's just so personal. But it's also it's had these kind of really big global impacts. Mm-hmm. And, and I would just love to to dive into it. Was there food scarcity at that time? Was was food something that was, was – was there instability with food? I think a lot of people just left with nothing, right? Yeah. So then – Yeah, you answered it. Yeah, it's, it's it was hard. It was obvi- obviously such a terrible time. 
I, I hope you can write this book. I hope that, but, but YA and mid-grade <laughs> fiction is what you're, what you're thinking about. There's a really lovely middle grade novel about partition. It's called The Night Diary, and it's it's really, really beautiful. There's some food in it, but it's it's written as letters. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Love that. Sonia Chopra, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Cheryl Rodbard, a.k.a. Mombard, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. It's fun having you in the studio. It's really been a blast coming here. <laughs> yeah, we drove in traffic for a few hours. And That's okay. We, we, we went over some, some, some bridges and tunnels, and now we're here. Okay, so I wanted to have you on um, to talk about our holiday traditions, starting with Thanksgiving, which to me is our Super Bowl, and then some holiday traditions. Do you, what do you think generally about Thanksgiving? Is that the big family holiday of ours? I really think so. It was always when you were a little kid, uh, we always did Christmas with my half, and then we started out doing Thanksgiving with your grandma Gert, your dad's mom. So then it morphed into coming to our house, and then it just got bigger and greater and more (laughs) wonderful. More wonderful, more people. I Mm -hmm. think we extended out to two tables sometime around elementary school, it felt like. Right. And then there was always like the grown-ups table and the kids. And of course, everybody wanted to sit at the kids table. And it it got up to about 44 people. (laughs) 44 at one point. We had 44. We've scaled back. We'll talk a little bit about what, what we're doing now, which is a little different. But I have to shout out the kids table because to this day, and shout out Brandon and Clark, Shout out that it is where it's at. The kids' table is where I sit firmly, and it is the best part seat in the house. Would you agree? <laughs> I definitely would agree. <laughs> we always had to kind of say, nope, no more space here. You have to go to the grown-ups' table. <laughs> yeah. So let's take us through the traditional Rod Bar Thanksgiving. And I think for our listeners, this is instructive because we do a certain style that I, I think, I believe, is a, is a cool style. Um we eat around 5, right? We set the well, dinner. Well, that's when the guests, yeah, that's when everybody starts arriving. But we oh, start right. with heavy appetizers right. from Mary Mariano's to the Gilroy's, et cetera. And it used to be we'd have like a signature drink or punch and lots of wine always. And then eventually move into dinner. Exactly. I I think that is a really great setup because we do these, these appetizer, our or to it's when people get to catch up, mm-hmm. get to like you know lubricate. If you're having like you know that kind of think, a Thanksgiving celebration, have to shout out the shrimp. We always <laughs> have large, big shrimp from the Marianos. Yes, <laughs> definitely. When did that, that start? Oh, I think the moment they came, which was definitely in the '90s, maybe. Yeah, feels like a '90s. <laughs> this flex. has been going on for I was counting back maybe four and a half decades. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I am 42, so... No, yeah. Well, with all people, let's just say four decades. Four, yeah, that's a while. So, yeah, heavy appetizers hang out, and then we sit down, and and with 44, or even like in the 20s, when we have in the 20s, it's always a buffet. We always set out the food and then have folks kind of kind of linger. Um, so I wanted to get your take around the, the centerpiece of Thanksgiving is obviously the turkey. So how do you do your turkey? Well... 
interestingly enough, it's a bridge between your, <laughs> my mother's and your dad's mother's yeah. because my mother, I grew up having a wet turkey. Mm-hmm. It was done with lots of juices always, always, always. And then your grandma Gert, it was always a dry turkey, just like a nice, rich, roasted skin, not a lot of juices. So um, I do half and half. Of course, we have to brine it for, you know, 10 hours-ish. Mm-hmm. You're like about the wet brine. You like putting it in a solution salt. of salt and water. Sal- saline and some herbs, yep. And herbs, exactly, and garlic, yeah. So when you say dry, I always think of that as not being good, but I, I, you've articulated something that's new, like the dry turkey is actually okay. Oh, flavor-wise, I liked it better than the wet. I mean, because it had that roasty, crunchy outside, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of carried through. I mean, your grandma would still baste it, yeah, but it wasn't like my mom would add moisture constantly. Let's talk about smoked turkey. Mm-hmm. Might be entering the, the, the conversation this year. We talked about it a little bit. What do you, what do you, where do you land on smoked turkey? Well, I like it, and it seems to be becoming more of a fan favorite. We, because as, you know, numbers increase, we always went with a Turkey, big turkey, mm-hmm. and then either a ham or smoked turkey, and then also a tenderloin. Yeah. So um, that kind of downsized a little bit to just a smoked turkey. Um, I th- I think it's kind of general consensus in our family now that that is going to be the favorite. <laughs> I think so. I'm I'm with you. I, my thoughts on turkey are this, and and this is short. I don't like turkey. <laughs> I, I, that's it. Like the end. I mean, it's to me not a great. Uh, flavor. Um, I like like roasted turkey sandwiches, but like for the main piece, I like that you always do a tenderloin. And I feel like there's always been a little bit of a wild card. I mean, mm-hmm. am I remembering that we did tamales once? Um, I think probably if a guest brought yeah. it, that that's the other little, you know, additional greatness is people would bring something that would be, you know, Unusual for us and great. (laughs) And great. Okay, enough talk of the turkey. Let's go into the sides, the most important part of the Thanksgiving meal um, writ large and and by all uh, accounts. Okay, I've been making Brussels sprouts for a minute. Do you? Okay, this is like on the record and straight talk. I didn't put this in the notes beforehand. Mm-hmm. Do you like my Brussels sprouts, Mother? I think your your Brussels have evolved into a most delicious dish. It started out being a little heavy with the balsamic and yeah. whatever sauce you're using. You sort of, you know, kind of reduce that. And then the flavors of the pancetta and the Brussels came out more. And that was just the last few times you've done it has been pretty perfect. And wow. we're talking about Jeez. this year maybe changing to, or not, improving maybe with some toasted pecan. Yeah, we talked about pecans. Well, thank you, Mother. That is truly the statement I would expect my mother to make about my cooking, so I appreciate <laughs> that. So for the listeners, let's fill you in a little bit about these Brussels sprouts, because they actually have a real origin story. So Susan Goen is a chef in Los Angeles. She's the chef at Luke and other restaurants, and she's really well-respected in the industry. The New York Times has often done big Thanksgiving packages. And back in, like, I would say 2004, this recipe debuted in the New York Times. And I cooked it, and I made it. And I followed it to a T at the time, and I think that's what you're implying and saying is when I follow this very restaurant-heavy, this restaurant recipe, um, it comes off as extremely strong. Here's what it is. It's basically Brussels sprouts and sautéed with butter and olive oil in the pan um, with pancetta, 
a lot of pancetta, probably like a pound of diced pancetta. Uh, if if I could if I could get my way, I think you kind of want me to scale it back to like half a pound. You pull the Brussels sprouts at some point. Um, and then you you throw balsamic in there and you reduce and then you put the Brussels sprouts back in and you add stock. And so it's got this car. It's basically a balsamic glaze and bacon. That's glaze. a good way to put it. More, a glaze more yeah. than a sauce. Yep. Yeah. And then I've made it over the years and um, I feel like it's been a favorite, but it's been a little bit strong for others. Yeah, but you adjusted that, really. Yeah, we got there. Mm-hmm. Maybe some breadcrumbs on talk, but I like I like this pecan talk. Okay, so let's move on to um, the, I would call this the classic Rodbard Thanksgiving recipe, which is, Mother, would you like to introduce it? Is it pink? It's pink. What do we call it? The pink shit. It's called the pink shit, which is, pardon our French, I'm sorry if there's children in the car and where you're listening to this. The pink shit is St- Susan Stamberg's Horse, a, a creme fraiche horseradish. Her mama's recipe, I Mama believe. Stamberg. Uh-huh. So mother set up, my mother talking about Mama Stamberg's recipe, what is it? Okay. Well, pretty much it's Uncle Jim's thing. And it he, is. we, abs- I absolutely love it. It's um, a blend of cranberries all, you know, pureed up basically, um, creme fraiche, horseradish, and that's that's the essence so you get that all into that nice Pepto-Bismol look. <laughs> totally. And then you put it in the freezer. Yeah. It's like cool because it's a freezer and then you thaw. Mm-hmm. And then it thaws slowly. And it is most delicious on turkey sandwiches. You know yeah. white meat has kind of a zero thing yeah. going forward? <laughs> yeah. That will make any piece of white meat turkey I know. Good. It really does coat um, some of the lesser flavored items on the buffet table. I think it's a great foil um so shout out to mama stanberg i wish i could do npr voice right now like <laughs> and now here's mama no that's like not I'm, i wish i could do npr voice i can't but um i love that recipe okay let's talk about dessert at thanksgiving specifically it, mother in your words what makes a great thanksgiving dessert okay from my point of view this is after eating heavy apps Big, heavy dinner. My perfect dessert would be a um, pecan, dense, dark, bitter chocolate with bourbon Mm. in it. Pie. Pie. So Mm. that you can have just a little sliver so you taste all those finishing tastes at the end of a meal, but you don't go, oh, I can't eat anymore. (laughs) Definitely. I I, I agree with you fully. I think that's a great point. That's a great direction to go in. For me, I enjoy pumpkin. The flavor of pumpkin to me, I embrace it. A lot of people don't. Oh, I like that too. But for me, the the go-to for the past few years has been the pumpkin cheesecake from Costco. Mm-hmm. Or shout out to Michelle Ferrara, a good friend of mine, Cosconi's, which is the <laughs> Italian version of Costco. Uh, inside joke. But Costco they cheesecake do it right. is amazing. Yeah, they really do. It's just the perfect food. And I... I We've written about Costco, and I'll put a, a great show, a great article in the show notes about Costco and about the special foods there. So we're doing things a little different this year because we're we're kind of taking that heavy app hour and actually making it a full event. And then, so what's the what's the plan this year? The plan last year it was well, the plan morphed because of a couple of down COVID years, yeah. 
And our families are changing and growing Mm -hmm. and just giving some of the families an opportunity to have Thanksgiving dinner with their family, their grandkids, their extended family. So we are now doing um, Thanksgiving Eve. So we have all the people, friends, and everybody over with food. Last year, we're all the heavy apps, basically, and maybe some little sandwiches. This year, we're going to do a taco bar. I love it. So that'll be good for the vegetarians and everybody Mm -hmm. and extending the happy hour for all night long. I love that. And I think I'm going to make something from Rick Martinez's book, um, uh, which is amazing and one of my favorites of the year. So I might make something from his book. Um, Let's transition to holidays. So we are Jews. Mm-hmm. But we also are big Christmas fans. Now, I want to first ask you, do you have a latka point of view? I do. Great. And it is lots of them. <laughs> Plain and simple. <laughs> lots of latkas. Okay. I love that. It's good. Good mother. Good one. Um, okay. How do you like your latkas then? Well, between your dad and I, whoever got our hands on making them first, he liked to just do the really dry, dry, dry and, you know, squeezing. And I preferred a little more moisture. Mm. And um, it's basically the same ingredients. It's just, the pres- you know, how hot is the fat, how long you're going to cook them. I like mine well done. But you know what? One of my favorite lackeys, and mm-hmm. you are free to make this anytime, were your kimchi. Mm-hmm. I think that was a really perfect um, yeah. blend of the vinegary, or mm-hmm. I don't know if the vinegar with the kimchi with the fat, and yeah. it just was so delicious. Thanks. Well, I might do that. I like I like doing a kimchi uh, latke. Um, I must fully disagree with you when it comes to a liquid. I am of the opinion that you need to get rid of as much liquid as possible from the potato, meaning you need to take. Your hand-grated potatoes, like having a little knuckle in there, going to the box grater, you're grating it, a little (laughs) bit of extra knuckle skin, makes it taste special. And what you do is you wrap it in a towel. You get a big, like, kitchen towel, and you you wrap it in there, and you squeeze and squeeze and squeeze. You put them down on the table, and you get another towel, and you squeeze and squeeze. I personally think no liquid is is essential to making very crispy latkes. And make sure you use a lot of oil. I think that's the other thing. We kind of get a little silly when we, like, skimp it on the oil. It's fried. It's a fried It's food. a French fry dinner. It's a French fries for dinner. Um, I've been noticing latkes have been pretty good in restaurants recently. I, I don't know. I just, I think people are getting, getting pretty good. If you're going to eat a latke, it's got to be full of fat or fried in fat. That yep. doesn't, yeah, yep. you know, because you don't even that often. <laughs> yeah. Doing like the zoodle latkes with like zucchini, maybe for another day. But I, I, I agree. Um, are you applesauce? Are you sour cream? Or are you both? I am none. I am a purist. Yep. I like those stacked on my plate and just eat my way all the way through. But we usually will have a chunky, preferably homemade applesauce and sour cream for everybody else Very who likes smart. it. I want to finally ask you about um, a holiday tradition in our house, which is your toffee. It is of legend. It is really good. Um, it's getting better each year. Uh, tell our Let's talk about it. Tell our listeners, how do you make your holiday toffee? Well, it's your Grandma Gertz recipe, and I have her original uh, 3x5 recipe card, and I love bringing it out and looking at it. It's just so great. A Jew from Bavaria (laughs) making that holiday Christmas toffee. You you know, the Germans know Christmas. They Mm -hmm. pretty much invented it. So really, it's just a blend of brown sugar and butter. It is that simple. 
and where the variations have come because, you know, your grandma wrote it down by memory and everything and toying with the amount of simmer time. She wrote mm-hmm. down seven minutes, and I am, I think last year I extended it another minute, and it made for like a little bit firmer, crunchier, and I like that. So I'm going to start doing it a little bit. So you just simmer it for that X amount of time. You're whisking it constantly too, right? You're kind yeah, of, you're stirring it so yeah. nothing sticks because you want that simmer, but you don't want anything burnt. You know, Exactly. I think you're, to your point, you're you're saying sometimes the toffee can be more granulated and have that little like almost like a crumb. But what you want is a smoother. That and but you know some people like your aunt Carol really yeah. likes that crumbly, buttery, yeah. sugary. So it's all taste. Lots of nuts in there too. Well, yeah. After you pour it onto a bed of uh, toasted pecans, chopped not yep. finely but coarsely. Rough, yeah. And then you pour that on, and then you just put on, I like Gerardelli bittersweet chocolate chips. Yep. And then put a baking pan over it for a few minutes, melting it. Then you spread it. Spread it very evenly. It has that nice little crown of chocolate. So it's basically the bottom layer is crushed, rough chopped nuts. Mm-hmm. Well, and butter. Butter the pan first. Butter, of course, yep. Um, nuts, toffee. And then chocolate. Yeah. And then the trick is also to let it cool for a minute or two and then begin to make your cuts. So then when it does harden, you've got the start of some cuts. It's easier. Cheryl, we ask all guests on the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have all the time in the world, or the burden of budget, meaning you do not need to worry about money, what would that cookbook be? All right. Well, I always love embracing the old, the here, and the future all together. So it would be called like, okay, boomers, let's eat. (laughs) But what it would be, recipes from my childhood, you know, and I'm kind of old. And then, you know, changed by... I'll just lump everybody, millennials, Gen Xs, Gen Z, you know, all of that morphed into it. And then going forward, because there's so many more exciting ingredients now with the different kinds of butters and spices and milks. And so that I would like to see. Here's the recipe. Love that. Here and then what it might look like when, you know— the grandkids or the young Gen Zs are at, in, at the helm. You know, just a little... Can you g- give me one example of a recipe where it's like the boomer recipe, but you're saying it's kind of modernized for a new audience? Yeah, this, I mean, I probably could come had I had more thought. But let's just take a goulash, for instance. Wow. That's like that's like <laughs> boomer or like depression era. <laughs> I know. We all grew up because you had your basic ingredients, yeah. you know, the chopped meat, the pasta, the sauce. But now think of where that could go with uh, the different flavors of the tomatoes, the different um, butters that you have out. You could put, you know, flavor yeah. it that way, different texture of pastas. It could be like za'atar. You could put in some Middle Eastern spices into and the you goulash. Could, you know, make it vegetarian. Yeah. And absolutely, za'atar, any kind of new flavors. I mean, that could be great as it started and great where it lands. <laughs> Mother, I love you so much. I love you so much. Thank Matt. you for joining the Taste Podcast. It's it was really been fun. An honor. It really has. <laughs> love it. Thank you. Love you. Bye.
The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>